Hello and welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast, where we follow the latest news, analysis, and research on China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Mike Storino, coming to you again today from Durham, North Carolina. I'm really excited about our third episode today. If you listened to the first two, first of all, thank you very much. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Belt and Road Pod, also Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Belt and Road Pod. I'm very excited for our third episode today. Uh, the first two episodes, I brought up a lot how I wanted to cover on this podcast the more nuance of what's happening within the Belt and Road. During my research, I discovered this wonderful paper called "Demystifying the Role of Chinese Commercial Actors in Shaping China's Foreign Assistance: The Case for Post-War Sri Lanka." Within the paper, just as the title says, it talks about the important role that state-owned enterprises have in the selection of Belt and Road projects, and it specifically talks about the Hambantota port, which, if you've been following anything related to the Belt and Road Initiative lately, is always utilized as an example. So this was actually a case study that followed the creation of the. The creation of the Hambantota port, and I just thought it was fascinating. So, although the paper is from 2015, I think there's some wonderful insights that we can learn about the Belt and Road Initiative today. So, my guest Xiao Zhu. At the time of this writing, she was a master's candidate at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. She is now currently works as a consultant on trade and investment issues for an international development organization. Welcome to the show, Xiao Zhu. Hey, Eric. It's such a great honor to be invited here and share my. Stories、uh, on Hamatota and all this experience and direct interactions with a lot of Chinese practitioners in the field and how they see the things different from the media and also the different sector, different stakeholders within Sri Lanka, how they perceive the same issues. So before we go into how important Chinese state-owned enterprises are to Chinese foreign assistance programs today, in your paper you you had a historical perspective on how. Chinese foreign assistance has changed from pre-1994 and then after 1994. Can you tell us a little bit about the regulatory framework for Chinese foreign assistance before 1994? The Chinese foreign assistance it started in 1950s during the Non-Aligned Movement when many countries in Africa and Asia、uh, recently gained independence and tried to help each other to focus on development instead of being a、uh, Subjects such as of great powers, geopolitical games. So that's the original background. China back then, the the per capita GDP, if I remember correctly, is only one third of sub-Saharan Africa. So China received a lot of foreign assistance from other developing countries, and China also gave a lot. Though because China was a member of the Non-Aligned Movement, it stick with the all the foreign assistance principles back then were consistent with the Non-Aligned Movement itself. The centerpiece of the Non-Aligned Movement is.、Um, Uh, respect the national sovereignty and the non-interventionist. So, because of this principle, the pre-1994 paradigm of foreign assistance is host-country government-centered. So, in that process, before 1994, as today, there are multiple stakeholders in the foreign assistance process. There are host-country government there, who is responsible to write all the proposals. To come up with a plan, with ideas of the projects, regardless of their political parties, and there are also Chinese institutional factors that has to supervise the process to make sure that it's non-interventionist, and and there's a Chinese Chinese development financial institutions that would、uh, give up 
those kind of grants and other financial instruments, and the Chinese firms who was responsible to implement those projects. So this is how the things work before 1994, which is actually more consistent with the current media.、Um, I wouldn't say speculation, current media knowledge of how the foreign system work in China. The central of the whole process is the government to government relation. First, is the host country、uh, come up with some ideas and approach to 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 Chinese embassy in the host country, and then just propose this kind of projects, and then. The embassy, the Chinese embassy, will forward this proposal to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Foreign Affairs will forward this proposal to the State Council, and the State Council will convene a lot of meetings with the development institutions, policy banks, Ministry of Commerce, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and also many other intergovernmental institutions that to see if these projects are feasible. And what we can do about that? So, if China decide to accept these projects, the Chinese banks and also the Chinese ministries will convene a lot of bidding process and selection process to select one or some Chinese companies, either private companies or state-owned companies, to implement that projects. So, the companies and then the Chinese institution would give either the grants or loans. To the host country government or host country government designated banks, and then the Chinese company would go to that host country and implement that projects. That's what happened before 1992. The regulatory system today still reflects the basic process in 1994. In the pre-1994, it is kind of what is outlined today, but it doesn't necessarily always work that way. It was very state to state run. It was、um, the Chinese state with the Chinese State Council accepting a bid or proposal from a host country or from a recipient country for a some、yep. type of a project, and then the state would have a state lending agency、uh, give the money to the host government for a project that Chinese firm does. You then talk about in your paper there was a switch in ninety four ninety five, and three different factors came into play. These three factors were globalization,、uh, constitution, and host country factors. That even though maybe on paper or in policy, it still everything was arranged. The Chinese foreign system was arranged in the pre ninety four way, but how these three factors—globalization, constitution, and host country factors—actually changed the way that Chinese foreign assistance is conducted. Please remember the Import Export Bank of China, which is the major institution to give out a lot of subsidized or interest-free low interest loans. This bank was established in nineteen ninety four. Uh, so during that time, China was still trying to trans to transfer itself from a planned economy into a market economy. And at that time, there, I mean, China's GDP was still very low, and so it didn't have much money that it was lending. And foreign assistance was yes, and even and foreign and foreign investment in a more clear sense、yeah. from China was very low. Yeah, that's very correct. The import export bank was not、uh, designed to uphold such a gigantic institution or initiative. Initiative like Belt and Road, it just established to support a couple of bilateral foreign assistance, like very low level, 
and very uh, hmm. uh, budget projects. But things change a lot during 1990s within China, also globally, due to the globalization, the collapse of Soviet Union. Every country trying to be a free economy back then, and it also happened in China during 1990s. The major change in China is the state-owned enterprises reform. So that I would call it a globalization factor. The SOEs reforms are quite important because even today, a lot of the Chinese entities overseas conducting the projects and building. Road are still SOEs. So in 1990s, as SOE reform started, instead of only confined their role before 1990s as an entity to implement government planning, government、uh, ideas, in 1984 the reform process started by adopting a principle of self-operation, self-financing,、mm-hmm. self-development, and self-restraints. So basically, they transferred a lot of SOEs. Into autonomous entities, the whole reform process is try to set SOEs into a market-driven entities, profit-driven entities. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot of discussion today. Say some of our SOEs are very stu- still very strategic, but most of the firms we would see here in the Belt and Road are those who are less strategic. Can Can you give an example of a strategic? Would that be like a Sinopec or something where you have natural resource based? So the definition for strategic, I think, is very different from what media think here, and also what the policy papers would describe uh, uh, in, in China. One example of strategic would be satellite development, and also in many internationally monopoly market, whatever company invent something. The profit will be so huge, about one hundred, two hundred percent, and、uh, it is basically monopoly market. People would per- perceive those as a strategic. But for many infrastructure sectors, they are today in a fully not fully but fairly competitive markets. Maybe in the fifties, only SOEs and also large companies can have the financing and also technical capacities to do roads, ports. But today, even a private company can do that. Thanks for the technological advancement in the past few decades. So for those. Engineering companies, many of them are not considered as strategic anymore. So the reform process would frame them into a market-driven entities with a major responsibility to make profits, to pay for the either public revenues or pay for other fiduciary responsibilities. Due to the fact that so many of those SOEs are public listed in Hong Kong, Shanghai, even many Western countries. Yeah, I think like nine of the top ten firms in China are state-owned enterprise, and it's tough to get actual data on Belt and Road. But I've seen anywhere between eighty, ninety percent of firms and Belt and Road projects are are state-owned enterprises of different sorts. There's very large ones, the national champions. There's、yes. uh, provincial and municipal, but it's still very、yes. state-owned enterprise centric. Yeah. Exactly.、Um, one of the reasons also because the Belt and Road is so fo- so much focused at this moment is so much focused on infrastructure. And during the reform process, China believed that for the manufacturing sector and other sectors, the private sector could have the capacity to compete. So it called a strategic retreat of SOEs from those sectors. They got privatized. But in nineties,、hmm. for the infrastructure, the private sector capacity were still not there yet.、Yeah. So the distribution of SOEs now we see today are still largely concentrating on the infrastructure now. This is the reform process of SOEs that are trying to make SOEs、uh, more market driven, so that the state can 
relieve some burden and encourage more private enterprises to employ more people and improve the overall productivity of the country. But at the same time, because the reform process started, the managers, senior managers of the SOEs are assessed every year based on their performance on making profits either within China or outside China. But because in the recent year, after 1990s, especially after 2000, the infrastructure sector in, within China reached a saturation. The demand is still is diminishing. So those firms start looking outside to look for opportunities, especially in other developing countries. So when they go outside, one of the very important uh, financial instruments would be the interest-free loans for the firms to reduce the cost, improve the profits, which is make the, the CEOs of SOC looks good among their competitive peers. So many of the SOEs start looking out. And uh, since they are the market-driven, they really need to look at the profit margin. So if they still do the old things, like in before 1990s, like doing some uh, grant projects to, to build a fishery ports or hospital, receive this Chinese aid, pure aid, pure grant. The profit margin for the firms to conduct those businesses is only 1%, 2%. It's pretty low. Yeah, wow. But if those firms could engage in BOT projects, which means build, operate, and transfer. Yeah. Or some people would say that supply, operate, and transfer. Mm-hmm. The profit margin for the SOE contractors, also private contractors, can improve to nearly 15 to 20%. So that's how the market works. Yeah. So so you have a process where in the in the 90s, uh, state-owned enterprises, they major reform. Uh, there's a restructuring, so they're at least slightly more market-based and they have to be profit-driven. There's overcapacity on especially infrastructure work, uh, a lack of demand uh, in China. So it uh, makes these firms try to find go abroad. So let's really dig in now into the constitution factor. So uh, starting from 1990s, uh, Actually, start all the way from 1949, when China was first established within the constitutions, their commitment for international development, for helping other developing countries to stand their own feet, which provide legal backings for many development finance institutions as we have today. So there are two very key principal commitments. The first is that there should be non-interventionism. So China as a state should not tell other countries what to do, what is the best for other countries. Mm-hmm. So because of this factor, uh, the regulatory framework to provide development financing remained the same as we have before 1994, where China would request the host country government, a host country government would pro- provide the development plan. The Chinese government see the host country government as the only legitimate partner to propose any development plan, not the host country private sector, not the Chinese state-owned enterprises, not the Chinese private sector. Yes. So this remain the same. But at the same time, due to the commitment of international development, China would think that, okay, China did so well in the infrastructure-driven investment model, how would we would be happy if we can promote this model abroad? Yeah. So this is a basically the institutional factor that altered a little bit after 1994. Mm-hmm. And the, actually, I think the most interesting one would be the host country factor that has been gone through the fascinating change in, in recent year here. So uh, in the host country, let's take Sri Lanka as an example. It's a fascinating history. Yeah. 
Sri Lanka traditional political structure is that it has two parties. It has a right-wing conservative party called UNP, United National Party. They fought hard for their independence, and their basic constituency of that party are still the plantation economy.、Mm-hmm. The UNP, as a right-wing party, largely represents the interest, especially economic interests, of the stakeholders within the plantation economy. And、uh, there's also another party called Sri Lanka Freedom Party, that is a kind of central-left party.、Yeah. So this party are very interested in the rapid industrialization of that country.、Uh, many labor force outside the plantation economy would be interested in that party.、Mm-hmm. And also, there's another very important shareholder in Sri Lanka is a Tamil Tamil community,、yeah. which was、uh, largely affected by the civil war between the government force and LTTE. So they just finished a 26 years of civil war. All the parties try to to make up the lost time and do whatever they can to develop the country. So different parties have their own different interests. So if you see the the po-、uh, the media in Sri Lanka. The left media would would do a lot of bashing against the United National Party,、yeah. the UNP, calling the UNP. They called the UNP as a Western ally and also anti-China. I think that's so important as the host country factors and the domestic、uh, political scene throughout the Belt and Road, and how different domestic political actors really utilize either on a positive sense or in a going against sense major Chinese finance infrastructure projects throughout the Belt and Road. Bringing it to the case study that you did on the、uh, Hambantota port in Sri Lanka, let's 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 kind of name out these actors based upon the globalization and the host country factors. So,、uh, who, are, who are the stakeholders that were、mm-hmm. involved in 2004 when kind of talks for this port came to be? Okay, now so many actors that got involved. First, immediately after the civil war, the Sri Lankan government was still under the Freedom Party, the Central Left Party. They are very interested in develop whatever projects they could to restore the country after the war. And Hamantota back then, even before the 2004, Hamantota was proposed multiple times by other international consultancy companies under feasibility studies. Those proposals didn't get materialized due to different reasons, political or other financial reasons. But in 2004, Sri Lanka was getting to the end of the civil war, and unfortunately, Sri Lanka. Was hit by really bad tsunami. Many people got killed in southern Sri Lanka. Many fisher villages got totally destroyed. So Sri Lanka called international support to help restore the destroyed villages along the south coast. One of the coast was in Hamantota, is a fishery village, and then. That's when China got involved. Not only China, but also many international foreign assistance agencies got involved. Like what happened under the regulatory framework that was、uh, first established in 1994, the host country would call China for support. China would select one of the company to go to Sri Lanka to implement this grant project. So China Harbor received this grant and start to restore this fishery village. That's how the company get into that village, Hamantota region, in the first place. So you have a situation: the civil war is still going on, but it's、uh, going down in 2004. The big tsunami happens. Many international development agencies and also China, the state comes and finds ways to assist, and they they have China Harbor Engineering Group come to restore a fishing village. Then 
What happens with the China Harbor Engineering Group? Well, the company, according to the publicly available resources, which is a very interesting interview article by one of the chief engineers and also the person who proposed the project in the first place, what happened back then is that during their restoration work in Hamatota, they realized that the port itself has a great potential to become a major international commercial port. So that's what they discovered. And at the same time, in Sri Lanka, it was also the Sri Lanka government was also trying to look for all the development proposals that can be financed and, and can be restored the country. So when China Harbor successfully completed these projects, according to that article, according to the, uh, the China Harbor staff, China Harbor formally handed over the proposal to develop Hanman Tota into a major international commercial and transport port to the uh, Sri Lanka government. But the interesting point is that during that process, the, the China state, either the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the China's uh, various development banks, they were not engaged at this early stage yet. The firms, because the regulation framework, still see China Harbor and other SOEs as a pure actor to implement policies. The regulation didn't expect. It is out of their knowledge that the firm themselves can have the capacity to do their own feasibility report for another country. So the regulation did not encourage the firm to do feasibility report for other host countries. Also, the regulation didn't forbid it. It just simply didn't imagine the role of getting involved in their local development agenda at all. So whatever China Harbor did with the host country government, it is out of regulatory restraints. So the China Harbor Engineering Group were there to restore the fishing village. And then while there, because of the process of globalization and because of the marketization or partial marketization of state-owned enterprises, they were introduced to this new country to, and they were able to, and they had connections from within the state in order to find basically new markets, new projects for them to take part in without the knowledge of the Chinese state. That's, I think that's basically the idea. Just think about that. When they're doing the fishery village restoration work under a grant, yeah. their profit margin on average, I'm not saying the company itself, but global-wise, the profit margin is only 1% to 2%. If they could participate in a government procurement engineering projects under BOT contracts, the profit margin could reach to 15 to 20%. The firm has very incentives to do so. How did the Hambatota port come to be China Harbor Engineering Group's contract? Again, uh, we have to go back a little bit with the 1994 regulatory framework, which still governs today. Uh, because the company itself, even though it has the technical capacity to implement these projects, the finance is still a concern. And to gather whatever the loans or other financial instruments from either the China side or whatever other side, the, by, by regulation, it should be the host country government that do the proposal first. China Harbor would help the host country government to do the feasibility study. And then in 2007, then Sri Lankan President Mahinda Rajapaksa visited China and formally proposed these projects to Beijing. Hmm. Yeah, that's how they come to be. But... It is not necessarily with the Hamantota case, but in the case of many other developing countries, when the host country government come to Beijing with certain proposal, some of them have already have their designated Chinese contractor already. So the host country government would tell Beijing, this is what I want to do. 
and this is my preferred mm -hmm. Chinese uh, partners or contractors that I I hope you can uh, you can help this company to get these projects. So it's kind of a little bit of a reverse of what you would assume or what is supposed to be in paper, where the host country comes to the Chinese state for financing. Chinese state goes to one of its policy banks in order to put the financing for a state-owned enterprise, where instead you have ch uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises that have relationships with the host country, local governments or political elites, who then lobby them to do a project, have the state-owned enterprise in mind for it, and they come and say, hey, we want this road built, we want this port built, and we have this ex-state-owned enterprise in mind to do it. Can you finance this? Yes, yes. Basically, that's what happened um, in some cases in Sri Lanka and also in other countries as well. Wow. So that, that that's fascinating. I think it's very different than what many people expect uh, happens in, in the Belt and Road projects. And so it seems like, though... If the Chinese state's purpose is to offset overcapacity and to be able to support jobs, support their state-owned enterprises, and also further internationalize them, in the sense of you know China Harbor building a port, it's not necessarily goes against the Chinese state interests. One, would you concur with that? And then two, are there times in which uh, the Chinese state and state-owned enterprises' actions on the ground in a, let's say, Belt and Road country or another country don't align? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, how can we define Chinese interest? Chinese interest is not only about exporting the overcapacities uh, to other countries. Also, China need to maintain its own financial stability. So many of the projects are financed by the policy banks and increasingly in recent years by commercial banks. And when the host country government comes to China, many of them have certain proposals. Some of them are great, uh, exactly um, very feasible and sustainable over the long term. It will be everyone's interest to approve these projects. But at certain cases, sometimes the projects are not great. It's not the most economically sustainable. But because sometimes the host country has a such a great traditional friendship with China, for example, maybe in the 50s or 60s when the China was super poor, that host country provided a lot of aid to China. Now, in that case, even though it wasn't very economically viable due to the respect for the host country and the long-term friendly relations, the projects do get through. But in that case, if that project default, then the Chinese bank would suffer and the Chinese insurance company would suffer. So if the project is not very economically sustainable and China approves it, in the short term, it might benefit the contractors and benefit whoever in the office in the host country. But over the long run, it put the Chinese insurance company, the banks and other financial sector actors in great risk. So how would you balance the, the, the China interest here? Yeah, because you have, I mean, China domestically, their you know, corporate debt rates and um, the state banks have had, had to pay off bad debts over and over again throughout the decades. And so even though you know, China is still sitting on a huge pile of uh, foreign reserves and they are just a larger country, a larger economy than most or all the other countries with on the Belt and Road. And so having one or two or a few dozen white elephant projects in there is not going to harm China uh, on a grand scale. You debt in a, a project, a failed project, the Hambento de Port in Sri Lanka, uh, or thus far not economically viable project, I should say. But if you multiply those over and over again, the debt problem comes China. Yes. Also, for the competition perspective, there are certain firms that has the channels to get closer to the host country government. But in many sectors, that host country does have a pressing demand 
for certain development issues. And certain Chinese firms, both private sector and SOEs, that has really good solutions to mm-hmm. that problem. Just because it doesn't have the initial channel of foreign system in the first place, that linkage couldn't happen. One of the best examples is that the agriculture sector in Sri Lanka. Whenever the old president Mahinda Raja Rajapaksa visit China, they always says that, yes, we will continue to cooperate in infrastructure sector, but we would call for support uh, for agriculture projects as well from China. But even though Mahinda Rajapaksa frees in that way, there were still no actors from China in Sri Lanka in the field operating on that projects. So there's no Chinese counterparts in the agriculture sector would push for the loans and other financial instruments to materialize that projects. So we see a lot of great cooperation opportunity lost in that process. Yeah. So, I mean, there certainly is um, you know, debt problems within it. There certainly is loss of efficiency problems because you're not – uh, necessarily financing the the Chinese firm or the project that could be happening within the Belt and Road that could actually have developmental benefits and be a true win win situation. Um, do you have any sort of um, I- ideas of how to to remedy this kind of situation of uh, almost kind of elite capture from state owned enterprises in host countries, if you want to put it as such? To I think to answer your question, we still need to really look back who are the real domestic stakeholders within Sri Lanka. The backlash that we see today from media, even though some of the accusations are not very true, the backlash we see today is not only political, but it reflects the lack of stakeholder engagement in the early, mm. early design process. For example, in the whole process, when China Harbor approached to the Sri Lanka host country government, the whole operation was very opaque. The company did not have any guidance either from international development agency or from Chinese development agency or from host country development agencies on how to cooperate with local sectors to make sure that your projects can go well over the long term. For example, for Sri Lanka to approach to China, different sector has their different interests. For the central left, which is represented by Sri Lanka Freedom Party, they're, even though they are willing to give these projects to China, but their interest is not only the port itself, it's not only a, a road itself, but the hope that after they get the infrastructure of the electricity port roads, the low-end manufacturing investment can come in so people can get jobs. But exactly because the process engaged in the host country in a very host country government in a, in a very exclusive manner, the local private sector's de- demands were excluded. And also when the China Harbor negotiate with uh, the host country government to make proposal, China Harbor w- does not have the knowledge that it needs to make assessment with potential Chinese investors to see if they want to follow up any investment on the manufacturing sector, if there's a port built or if there's a road built. So on the left, the jobs are not created. Uh, also on the right, because in the negotiation process, it was a central left uh, government in office. The central right parties doesn't have much voice to yeah. represent what they care about especially in the plantation economy. But in reality, from all the way from 1950s to today, the agriculture sector plantation economy contribute most of the national incomes. They are, they are the top exporters, but they are facing increasing international pressure. So for the central right, their interest is that how can they diversify their production away from the not-so-profiting tea and the rubber 
into something that can meet the demands to East Asia and other newer markets. China has a great potential, such a great potential to import and help the country to, to diversify. For example, the major staple food in Sri Lanka is called cassava. Now in Sri Lanka, people just eat cassava, but cassava has is a dual-use product that can be just after a very, very basic processing. It can be used as a powder for the clean cars that will tremendously increase the profit value, the, mm-hmm. the, the value addition for whatever firms engage that and improve people's income. So that's all the legitimate concerns from the, 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 the traditional sectors that were not heard in the initial de- decision-making process of the port. So you're saying if if there would yeah. have been more local stakeholder engagement at the beginning of these projects for foreign assistance from China, or at least a, a diversification of firms, and so, so there aren't these, you know, China Harbor kind of having a, a, a dominant presence within the ruling party in Sri Lanka, there would be other industries like the uh, upgrading of the cassava plant to 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 sell it as a value add product instead of as a basic commodity that China could, that a Chinese firm could easily assist with. But because they have no rapport with the local uh, political elites, nobody is investing into that. Exactly. There are so many lost potentials. And honestly, I don't think during that process, anyone is deliberately doing anything wrong. Anyone just doing what their responsibility is in current regulation, bilateral regulation, either on Sri Lankan side or Chinese side. But the regulation itself didn't didn't give any guidance on how to engage with local private sector at early stage. That's without a lot of great cooperation opportunity. Everything that you talked about today about the setting up of the Hambantota port happened before the beginning of the Belt and Road Initiative. And you marked 1994 as a year of major change in China's foreign mm-hmm. assistance approach. Has the Belt and Road Initiative or maybe Xi's relative consolidation of power uh, changed dynamics again of how Chinese foreign assistance or foreign investment or foreign service contracting change? Or, or is it just maybe more money and Belt and Road is a brand name for what China or Chinese actors have been doing in the developing world since 1994? Mm. Thank you for this question. So, uh, I actually I do not know Mr. Xi himself, but but many people speculate if certain political political actor can change the whole landscape of international development at all. I personally would doubt. So, if you see how not only the foreign assistance industry but also other industry how they evolve, most likely they are bottom up process that the firms, the individuals, when they found something like regulation doesn't fit their interests, they would push for it a little bit. Or if there's other sectors, other actors did a great job, other people want to be a part of it. So it was in that process, a, so gradual bottom up process that keeps things progressing. And most of the times, people only see Mr. Xi or other Chinese president or in other countries, a president come here and send a deal would expect that it's a re- the idea of the president. But in reality, it was a decades of the explorations of the firms of other shareholders for their own struggle, their mistakes, their corrections that, that, that would chart the road in the future. I think the major issue that China should double think is the, the distribution justice issues. As we can see from, from the case of Hanman Tota and also other Chinese companies' example, the current regulatory framework 
which really focuses on the host country government, is not very helpful to bring other sectors in. I would say that it's not only a China issue, but an issue of bilateralism in themselves. You can see from the case from Hamatota, the firm, even though it's an SOE, but they are pretty aggressive on profit making. So when I talk to the practitioners on the field, especially those in SOEs, their concern is, yes, a lot of concern comes from how can I secure some loans or secure some finance from whatever institutions possible. Now, the firms only go with the China Exim Bank because along the long-established relations. But increasingly, there are so many firms want to get the loans from China Exim Bank. The bank itself has a capacity limits. So many of the firms will go to other banks, either multilateral organizations or commercial banks in China, commercial banks in other countries to get whatever financial tools necessary. The firm themselves are not discriminating against any financial institutions. Chinese, American, Europeans, Sri Lanka, multilateral, that's the least concern of the nationality of the developed institution by the financial terms themselves. So one of the very good examples is if you see there's another Chinese SOE called Three Gorges Corporation that built a lot of dams in Latin America and many countries. Initially, it started from the Exim Bank to get the loans and get things done. And then the firm tried to try to ascend the global value chain because even though you are doing the loan projects, your profit margin is only 15 to 20%. Yeah. But if you're an investor, you can get profit over long term. But when they approached the Exim Bank, the Exim Bank rejected because it was an equity investment. The Exim Bank depends a lot of foreign assistance budget from the state council. So the foreign, to get the foreign assistance budget, it has to fulfill uh, certain diplomat protocols. So the foreign assistance pro- budget does not support the companies to own other countries' infrastructure, but only to help them to set up a plant, uh, a, a power plant, and leave and give it back to their own country. So that's why they have to reject the investment huh. deal for the, uh, the dam development in Pakistan. As a result, they, the Three Gorges Corporation went to the International Financial Corporation of the World Bank to request for financial assistance huh. uh, of their equity investment in Pakistan, and they got it. So I think it's a very good example. Even though there's only 15% of equity investment from the FC, but the whole operation of that project has to go with the FC standards, either environmental protection, labor standards, and also on the long-term or greater economic sustainability yeah. and other structural reform of the country, the World Bank intervened to make sure that the project would benefit everyone. Yeah, the, the I mean, IFC has kind of the de facto international standards for inter- environmental and social assessments and stakeholder engagement and th- lots of things in which Chinese firms could very much benefit of their own technology skills transfer and to be able to do that and utilize that. And there is also an idea that uh, being able to assist Chinese firms to have more ownership, whether it be a BOT project or actual joint venture within a country rather than just being a service contractor would force or allow them to localize better and learn how to interact better within the local context and learn how to abide by host country rules and regulations and laws because they have a longer term interest of understanding those things rather than being there for till the project's done and then leaving. 
Yes. So, Shaul, thank you so much for coming on. Now it's a part of the show in which give recommendations. These can be anything Belt and Road Initiative related, China related, or other related that you think people should be reading or watching. So for my recommendation, just have to read of some historical documents from of the Rice Rubber Agreement for my Chinese counterparts, international development to see when the harshest international environment, how did China succeed its presence in a foreign country when everything was against itself. The core of the Rice Rubber Agreement is that the deal with China support 300 million workers' employment in their difficulties. And they really give us a very example today to reflect that if there's any projects in China from today, is there any way that the project's not only beneficiary to whoever in the office, but we can, can China develop its own mechanisms to translate the profits to the majority of the country? Just look at the, look at the, the old cases before and have some inspiration for now. Well, great. Uh, We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, My recommendation will be uh, From Impediment to Adaptation, uh, Chinese Investments in Myanmar's New Regulatory Environment by Sui Su Mark and Yoi Zhang. It's in the Journal of Current Southeast Asian Affairs, um, Volume 2, 2017. It's just another great kind of very nuanced piece, just like Xiao Zhu's. It's about the post-Miso Dam incident, how the new reform government within Myanmar actually raise the level of their environmental and social uh, policies in terms of infrastructure investment to Chinese firms. And so it shows host country agency in raising um, Chinese investment firms' uh, social responsibility in investment. So it's it's very fascinating. Xiao Ju currently works as a consultant on trade and investment issues, and she has this wonderful article uh, back from 2015 called Demystifying the Role of Chinese Commercial Actors in Shaping Chinese Foreign Assistance, the Case of Post-War Sri Lanka. And it does a wonderful job of uh, showcasing and highlighting the Hambatota port and um, how it came to be and the different actors that were at play. So Xiao, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Belt and Road Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. Uh, We are on iTunes, on Google Play, on Spotify. Uh, If you like us, give us five stars. If you don't, give us one and tell us what we could do better. Uh, And thanks for listening.